Hey guys, thank you so much for stopping by Legend Church's weekly podcast. Just a quick reminder, you can check us out at legendchurch.com, find us on Facebook and Instagram, and Sunday mornings in Madisonville. But hey, without further ado, set the cruise control, start Matt Run, or grab a drink, and let's talk about all things Jesus. Good to see you guys. Um, uh, welcome to church family. I hope you guys are doing well. Um, today, I'm going to apologize because I think at one point I'm going to get real mouthy in this sermon. So just as a heads up, I'm going to get mouthy. Um, we're sort of keying in on what's been, I think for me, me personally, I think is the dominant issue of discipleship facing followers of Jesus today, and it's a question of identity. And I think we live in a world where we're vying for different tribal identities all the time in the ways that we identify ourselves. And I think it's getting toxic. And I'm worried about it for the big church, always. And if I'm worried about it for the big church, I'm also worried about it for our little church all the time. And I was thinking back on it when I was, um, this will, uh, I've been starting off sermons lately, like going out of my way to like really tear myself down. So let's continue in that trend. Um, when I was 15, it will surprise you to know that I wasn't a well-behaved kid. Um, fights a lot at school, but that was pretty normal in my school. That was before Lakota was really like bougie. Lakota was still real redneck then. And uh, so we got in fights a lot because that's what kids did. And um, I, I was 15 years old. And uh, we stole bikes a lot. We like to, <laughs> I, do, I say that story to, to Justin got his bike stolen at one point. Um, <laughs> not by me, but um, we stole bikes all the time. And that started, like, once you start one antisocial behavior, it's real quick to others. And um, at 15, I was dating a girl whose parents were the most, like, southern Georgia people you could ever meet in your life. Like, and to this day, I will always be thankful for them because I think they saved my life a couple times. Um, but I got caught shoplifting. It's the dumbest story. I, uh, I stole a guitar magazine because I wanted the guitar tablature so I could learn to play this Metallica song. And so I walked out of a store with the $2 magazine, and I got rung up for shoplifting at Van Lunen's, and that, they're out of business now because of me. Um, <laughs> but so I, the, the, the security guard comes in, and he says, um, hey, uh, I can call the cops, or I can call your parents. What do you want to do? And I was like, I don't know. Um, let's, I'm going to have to go home anyway, so let's give a parent so my parents can't pick me up. Up one side of me, down the other. Fair, man. I, I was stealing, and it was fair of them to yell. About an hour and a half later, my girlfriend calls me, and I tell her what happened. And then about 15 minutes later, she says, uh, hey, you need to come over for dinner tonight. And I was like, um, what? And she's like, my parents would like to speak to you. And I was like, come on. And so I go to her house, and her parents send her brothers and her out, and I have to sit and have dinner with just her and her dad and her mom. Um, and her, their parents, they still, she's, the, her mom, Donna, still prays for me. She still sends me cards telling me she's praying for me. Like, they're the sweetest people in the world. But she sat down, they sat down and said, this is your chance. This kind of behavior is not acceptable for the kind of person who's going to be dating our daughter. We don't want you hanging around her if you're going to act like that. We don't like the kind of person you're becoming if you're going to be like that. And I was like, all right, that's fine. Like, I get it. But her mom stopped one day, in the middle of that. And she was, Jason, 
You're trying so hard to prove to to everybody around you who you think you are, and none of this is who you are. This stealing, this fighting, this kind of things, that's not who you are, and I refuse to let you be that publicly. Um, And it was the most wholesome and encouraging thing an adult had ever said to me in my life. Um, Donna was real big on who I, and particularly I met them at the church I went to at the time, real big on who I am as a follower of Jesus and how that's more important than anything else. And um, man, that like, that, that was the thing. I, like I moved off of my uh, rambunctious ways. Um, she moved to Texas about six months after that. And then, um, then I started dating Kim. And so um, I think all the time that if Rebecca's mom hadn't done the hard work in making me a decent person, Kim would never have put up with me later on. And so I want to think today about these issues of identity and who we are in Jesus. And I want that to be a central part of our Lent. The baggage that we carry, the baggage that we carry of trying to prove to other people who we are, or the baggage we carry of not letting some people join us. Look, who's on the ins and who's on the outs are really important questions, I think, for Christians going forward. So that's what I want to think about a little bit this morning. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for giving us an identity in you. Thank you for the new creation. Thank you for seeing us as potential. Thank you for seeing us as we could be and not seeing us merely as we are. Lord, I thank you for loving us, and I thank you for pushing us to be better. In Jesus' name, amen. So the resurrection of Jesus throws the whole church into a tizzy. When Jesus is resurrected, it screws everything up because every good, faithful Jewish person in the first century knew what happened when the Messiah arrived. When the Messiah arrived, the empires of the world were overthrown, Israel was lifted up, and all the, na- all the nations will come bend their knee to this new Jewish Messiah. And the, 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 the million years of peace will reign. Everybody, Everybody was in agreement on this. They didn't know how it was going to come about, but that was what was going to happen when the Messiah arrived. Then the Messiah arrived and allowed himself to be killed, and then he resurrected, and nobody knew what resurrecting was, and then he left, and he told this church, these people, these stragglers of his, to start fixing the world, to start making it the way it's supposed to be. And so what happens is that these people... Instead of having a kingdom they get to administer, they have a Holy Spirit and they have a whole bunch of questions. They don't know what to do. They're Jewish people, so they've been very, very closed off and suspicious of everybody else in the world. They do not like outsiders. They think that God's wrath is upon the world because of the way the outsiders act. But they don't have rules anymore. And then the whole New Testament is the process of negotiating the new rules. Who do we hang out with? What do we eat? Where do we go? How do we go to the market? What's it like to to live together as the church in this vision? And it should be comforting because as much as the church screws things up today, the church screwed things up then because what people do is screw things up, right? It should be really encouraging when we read the, the New Testament to remember that they were just as flawed as we are. And so we're going to pick up today's story in Acts chapter 8. And Acts chapter 8 is the, like the wild west days of the early church because nothing's established yet. There's a persecution in Jerusalem and the church flees. They take off out of Jerusalem to go to the four corners of the earth to start spreading the gospel outside of the city of Jerusalem. 
There isn't a hierarchy. There isn't like a head priest. There isn't a high pastor that you go to. They work things out in councils, and they work things out on the fly, and that's where we're going to pick up the story. Um, the, story is the, the story of Philip, he's one of the 12, and he has been, no, I'm sorry, not one of the 12, he's, he's taken Stephen's place after the persecution, and he is being sent to do some work. Look at Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now it's important, the desert. What happens in the desert to people of Israel? People of Israel find their identity in the desert. Where does Jesus go to start his ministry? He goes to the desert to find his identity. Where does John the Baptist go? He goes to the desert to find his identity. Where does the apostle Paul go? He goes to the desert to find his identity. Every prophet, everybody goes to the desert to find out who they are. Philip is sent to the desert, down, down to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. So a couple of things, right? So Philip's out in the wilderness. The wilderness is the place where God can work, where God is not encumbered by the religious stuff in the city. He goes out there and he's led by the spirit and he just goes. He doesn't know what's gonna happen. And he meets a person who has a couple of identities that are really important. One, the man's an Ethiopian. So he serves a foreign ruler. He lives in a different, he's a, excuse me, he serves a foreign ruler, lives in a different country, but he's a faithful Jew. He's gone from Ethiopia up to Jerusalem to worship. That's great. He's also a eunuch, which means he can't go to Israel to worship. He's not allowed in the temple. Old Testament law would have said anybody that was a eunuch would not be welcome into the temple because of their abnormality, their disfigurement, whatever, however you want to phrase that, the, the condition of being a eunuch. This man, through no fault of his own, was a sexual deviant and was not welcome in the temple. For Jewish people to be a foreigner who serves a foreign, king, a foreign queen in a different nation, and to be sexually disfigured like this, Luke is drawing you a picture of the worst person, the worst kind of situation a person can be in. And it's fascinating that it's not his fault. This man bears a burden and a distance from God and a distance from his fellow Jewish people through the actions of others, Right? And this is the dude that God has sent Philip to. A good and faithful Jew would never have gone to an Ethiopian or to a eunuch. Ever. Because they were impure. They were unclean. They could taint you so that you became un uh, unclean and impure and you could no longer go to the temple. Um, I went looking because I don't know why Luke doesn't give him a name. Church history records his names. The eunuch's name is Simeon Bacchus. And we should remember that because he's a real person. He's a real person with hopes and fears and dreams. He's a real person who wonders if there's a place in the kingdom of God for him. He's a real person who wonders if he has community. He's a real person that wonders where he fits in. And he has all the power, all the wealth, all the prestige. He is a high-ranking foreign official. This is a man wealthy, but lonely and lost. So let's ask the obvious question before we get into the, the, the preachy part of this. Who are the foreigners or the impure people that have been told they aren't welcome in the church communities today? 
Think big picture. Who are the people who've been told you're not welcome here if you continue to be that way? Who are the folks who are not allowed to come sit at our table? We all have them. Who are the people that we're uncomfortable with? Who are the people we are sure God has said, man, you're out? Who are the outsiders? Who are the misfits? Who are the foreigners? Who are the people that are not welcome at our table? That, friends, is baggage we have to drop. And in a culture right now that is drawing finer and finer tribal lines between us in the neighborhoods, and a culture that's telling us we're at war with somebody who likes this or doesn't like this, we sin against God's spirit when we break the body of Christ in such a way. And the church has got to let go of that baggage. I'm going to get real preachy on that point in just a few minutes. Look at verse 30. Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was like a sheep like to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shear is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who could speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. This Isaiah passage from Isaiah 53 is a ground zero for the church's understanding of Jesus in the Old Testament. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Verse 34 is the most important part of the passage. Who is this about? It's about Jesus. Who is the one who was led to the slaughter? Who is the one who bears the price of the sins of the nations, all of them? And the earliest church said, it is Jesus who does it. And it's it, the, the critical part here that we would never get, you would never get from reading this text. If you read through Isaiah 53, 54, 55, that passage of scripture, God makes a promise at the end. And God's promise is that when everything's right, when the Messiah has come, when the, when the creation is being fixed, God is going to call back the eunuchs and the foreigners to worship in his temple. And so here's a eunuch and a foreigner reading the scripture alone and says, God has promised he's going to bring me back. God has promised that I'm not so far gone that I can't be brought back. But I don't know how that's going to happen. And Philip says, brother, this is going to happen because Christ has made it happen. If Philip was a good and faithful and traditional Jewish person, he would have said to the eunuch, I am sorry, my friend, you are outside the promises and the blessings of God. Because that's what Orthodox Judaism had taught him to believe. But Philip is able to tell him the good news about Jesus, that everyone is welcome in the kingdom of God. This is a man who had everything but belonging to God, and that's what he was chasing. And Philip is there because Philip knows Jesus, because Philip is obedient to the scriptures, and because Philip, sorry, obedient to the Holy Spirit, and because Philip knows the scriptures, he's able to breathe hope where this man had only experienced death. Church, can we breathe hope where everybody else experiences death? Can we be the people that tells everybody you're welcome here even though they told you you're not?
One of the things that I've known about myself for a long time is that I'm sort of desperate for affirmation and attention a lot. I go out of my way to seek it, but I also go out of my way to be as just difficult about everything as I can be. I need people to love me, but I need you to do it on my own terms, which is wildly difficult to maintain. Um, I sort of dare people not to like me all the time, and it's been a game that I've played for as long as I can remember. Um, at this little church that I went to where I met Rebecca and her mother, this little church, kind of backwards, kind of tired, right? They did the good Presbyterian church thing. Like, it was, man, the people there loved me and told me I was welcome where every other voice in my life told me I was not. And every single thing I did to make those people not like me, they brushed it aside and welcomed me in. Now they said to me, hey, stupid, stop it. You can't be shoplifting and fighting anymore. But we still love you. It turns out that they could see me for who I was, not the things that I did. And I wonder if we can do the same for other people in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces, and in our families. Look at verse 36. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water where the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? Critical question. We should be asking this question all the time. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? Baptism is the sign that says I'm in. Lord, I am joining with you. Lord, I go to my own death and my own resurrection through baptism. Lord, I come and I have my sins washed away symbolically so I can reflect the real work that Jesus has done. What can stop me from being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. And both Philip and the eunuch went down to the water and Philip baptized him. When they came out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. I don't know what to do with the transportation thing. I don't know how to make sense of the teleportation thing. My, my Bible commentary just said nothing. It, it just kept going. Like it didn't, it didn't bother to try to answer the miracle. The real miracle is not the transportation. The real miracle is this: where this man had been told he was not welcome in the people of God, Philip was able to say, you are in fact welcomed, cherished, and loved in the kingdom of God. And then the man goes away rejoicing. Philip baptizes him and brings him into the family of faith. His collusion with foreign empires is not a problem. Simeon's traitorous service to a foreign kingdom, not a problem anymore. Because God transcends the empires of the world. The empires of the world mean nothing in the face of the kingdom of God. I have no loyalty to any empire anymore because I'm loyal to the kingdom of God. That's where I belong. That's where my identity is. His sexual identity is not a problem anymore. Think about the church. If the church could teach this message right now, if the church with one voice could stand up and say, your sexual identity is not an issue because you bear the image of the risen God. You are a child of God who bears his image and it is more important than any other thing about you. And you are welcome here in the kingdom of God. We have abandoned studying and thinking and meditating on ethics and beliefs. And because we've done that, we've become shallow in the way we defend and understand things. It is critically important that we say to people, you are welcome here, not because of anything you've done, not because of any merit that you have, not because of any skill, but because you bear the image of God, you are welcome in the kingdom of God. And we have lost that. 
because we're so tied up in sectarian and tribal identities. I can't, this is the most, it's the most subversive thing in the world that the early church is doing is saying everybody's welcome because of the work of God, not because of our own work. It undermines everything. It undermines any notion of hierarchy. Who am I? I am nobody. What have I been called to do by being a pastor of a church? I've been called to serve and to wash feet and to debase myself. I've been called to be lower because Christ is higher. I am nothing without Jesus. And the freedom of not having to be anything is so good. Because every other tribe you belong to has a purity test or a membership test that says you got to do X, Y, Z before you can be in. And the church says, you are a beloved child of God. Please come in. Brothers and sisters, let go of the identity and the things that the church puts on, that the world is trying to put on us because it's breaking us. So first, what do we do with this? Whatever your conception of the kingdom of God is, however you imagine the church, however you imagine the kingdom of God is, if there are people that are not welcome, we start by repenting of that. We go to Jesus and say, I am sorry that I have said somebody is not worthy of being part of this group that I find myself in. We can do that with big picture stuff, or we can do that with little picture stuff. I told you I was going to get a little mouthy. When I started ministry, when I started teaching, I was real edgy, I know, um, super cool pastor guy, tattoos, all of it. Um, I remember standing up in my youth ministry and saying, your friends, your friends who are pro-choice and are Democrats, they're allowed to come to our church. And you could hear kids go, huh? because the church had always said that's not true. The church had always drawn a line along stupid political lines that exist in our culture. Today, it's just as edgy of me to stand up and say, every, every conservative friend you have is still worthy and welcome in this church. We cannot... We cannot let the lines that the world draws between us be drawn in our churches or else the church is just a subservient, a servant of all the political whims. It will not do for those of us who are young adults, those of us who are deconstructing, those of us who are lifting up and trying to become a new church, it will not do to create a religious left to replace a religious right. We have to be better than that because we serve the risen Christ. And he has said that my worst enemy is worthy of my love and my adoration. This, please don't hear me talking, telling you about how good a job I do at this. This is confession for me. I draw lines. I know who I think is in and who is out. But I know that Christ wants them all in. And so every day is a choice to say, Jesus, help me to be more like you. Help me to see everybody like you do. Or maybe it's smaller. Maybe we don't need to think big picture political stuff. I'm on, that's my sort of like project this year is to stop thinking about the world in political terms. I can think of three different people who've told me um, that they didn't think that they would be welcome at legend because their marriage had ended in infidelity. And they felt embarrassed or ashamed or cast out. That's not true. There's nothing that any one of you can do where you're not welcome here, where your identity is not greater than any, any mistakes or sins that you've committed. We are the people that welcomes everyone in. We are the people that says there's no too far. 
It's really hard to do. But where we find ourselves limiting the grace of God to other people, we will find limitations placed on God's grace to us. God loves you and respects you so much. God gives you so much sovereignty that if you choose to reject the grace and the love and the mercy that he gives, he'll honor that, but he'll also not give it out. Are we the kind of church where everyone, really, really, everyone is welcome? I'll give you an answer. Justin's, I don't know if Justin said this from the stage, but I know he's been thinking it for like five years. Are we a church where folks with disabilities are welcome? Right now, we are not because it is impossible to get into this room. Right? It's a real thing. I think we haven't thought through. Not maliciously, not malevolently, but it's a real thing where people, there are barriers to entry. We have to be a church with no barriers to entry because Christ breaks down barriers between him and God. The second thing, most of us here are probably not Simeon. Yeah, most of us are not most of us are not the outsiders. Most of us are not the rejected. Most of us are not the lost in that way. My question for us is, can we be Philip? Can we be, can we be the person who invites the outsider to the church? Can we be the person that says to the person, hey, you're welcome here. We love you. Can we go and invite somebody who, who's been told they're not welcome? And then to add another layer, can we know our story and can we know God's story so well that when somebody says, what's to stop me from being baptized? The answer is a joyful nothing, brother and sister, join the church. Philip is aware of his story. He's aware of God's story and he's obedient to the spirit when the spirit leads him. He doesn't have to go consult anybody. He doesn't have to ask permission. He doesn't have to justify anything theologically. He does what the Holy Spirit tells him to do because he knows the story and he's obedient to God's voice. Can we be people, can we be prophets like Jesus, welcoming people with open arms? And can we bear witness against the corrupt traditions and practices and baggage that keeps people out of our churches? Can we be the voice of God in a healthy, respectful way that bears witness to the new creation and invites everyone in and we sit at the table as equals together? There's a scholar named Robert Hall who, uh, who puts it like this. I think that's the next slide. The essential task of the prophet then is to clarify membership requirements of those belonging to God sometimes in ways that redraw Israel's boundaries to include the excluded ones. We must be a church of prophets that clarifies what it means to belong to God, and if the old boundaries don't work, the old boundaries go away because the kingdom of God is not constrained by boundaries. And I really like this second line of this quote. In each case, those placed outside the borders of official religion those who've been told they're not welcome, those who've had bad pastors or bad leaders who've said, no, no, you can't belong here. Those who've been put outside the official religion turn to Jesus to access the powerful resources of spirit and scripture. Brothers and sisters, if you feel excluded, ignore the church, go to God's spirit and go to the scriptures. If you feel lost, ignore what you've been told, ignore the traditions, push them away and go to the spirit and go to the scriptures and find yourself welcome and loved.
the baggage we carry of the people that are allowed in or the people that we push out is damaging to the mission of the church and it bears, it weighs us down. Where the church wields tradition, the prophet wields the spirit. I doubt very much that Philip set out that morning to break with thousands of years of Jewish tradition. But when God's spirit told him to break the tradition, he broke the tradition. And I think the same fork in the road lies for each one of us in this room. This Lent, can we welcome everyone that's been excluded? Is our vision and our concept of the kingdom of God big enough that says, yes, there's room for you. Come on in. Yes, there's room for you. Come on in. There are saints among us, and I think of Donna Graydon in ninth grade who was able to see me and to tell me that I was always welcome and loved no matter what I did. I was welcomed and I was loved. Um, and I just don't know, even today, I don't know that she understands how much gospel work she did. Brothers and sisters, you've been called to the same gospel work. You are deeply, deeply loved. And there's nothing you can do that comes between you and God. There's nothing you can do that's more powerful than the work of Jesus that can unrestore you to relationship with God. There's also... Nothing your friends have done, and they're looking to you for welcome and love to bear witness to the newness of Jesus. I'm going to invite the band to come down, and we're going to do our time of communion. And when we come this morning, this is its own kind of baptism. This is its own kind of practice where we, where we practice our death and our resurrection. We practice picking on the body of Christ, which always means a crucifixion. And we practice our resurrection where we come back, where we are restored in a powerful way. This morning as you come down, who are the people in your life that need, that need told that they are loved and they are welcomed? Who are the outsiders? Who are the ones that you know are just awful? And look, they might be. This isn't, this isn't a pretend. Like, it's not like they suddenly get better. They're just defined by the things. God has placed people in your life that desperately need to know that they are loved by the creator of the world. You're the Philip. I hope that you get transported today. Um, but ask God. Ask God who the person is. Who have you been sent to to tell them the story of the scriptures with the guidance of the Holy Spirit? Let me pray. Lord, open our eyes. Lord, send us to desert paths. Send us to the outcasts. Give us the weak. Lord, help us to find the shameful. Help us to find the worst, Lord. Help them to come to your church so that we can tell a story of the amazing things that our powerful God does with the least of these. Lord, we need no prestige. We need no, we need no strategy. We need no planning. We need, no, we need nothing but you, Father. Send your spirit to guide us. Give us vision to see every single person as you see them and let us announce to the world gladly and loudly that there is nothing that can come between those, the people that you love and their baptism and their full inclusion in the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name, amen.